It was about 10 years ago, a man by the name of Oral Roberts died. Perhaps you've heard of the name Oral Roberts. Perhaps you even saw him on television a time or two. Uh, He's probably the founder and the most influential person in what you might call the health, wealth, and prosperity movement, the prosperity gospel. And his biographer, David Harrell, describes how Roberts discovered the prosperity gospel and how it became the centerpiece of his message. One day, he opened up his Bible randomly and spotted 3 John, verse 2, which says this, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. Roberts then showed the passage to his wife, Evelyn, and utterly divorcing that verse from its proper context, the couple talked excitedly about the verse's implications. Did it mean they could have a new car? A new house? A brand new ministry? In later years, Evelyn looked back on that morning as the point of embarkation. I really believe, she said, quote, that that very morning was the beginning of this worldwide ministry that he has had because it opened up his thinking. (coughs) Roberts testified that a shiny new Buick acquired by unexpected means shortly after that experience, quote, became a symbol to me of what a man could do if he would believe God. So that brand new Buick was was a sign for Oral Roberts that what a man could do if he believed God. Well, we have a passage that we are looking at this morning that is bloody. It's bloody because it's been butchered out of context by many a prosperity preacher. It's dripping with blood as it's been hacked limb from limb from its proper context and understanding and... My task this morning is to help us to understand the passage within its context and to understand properly what it means so that we can apply it to our lives. This passage is in the context of the Gospel of John, (coughs) where John is communicating to us the, the purpose that John writes. He says, I'm writing these things in 2031, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that you might have life in his name. So John writes that we would understand who Jesus is and that we would believe. And so you really don't depart very far from a proper interpretation principle. Any section you read in the Gospel of John, ask yourself, what is this teaching me about Jesus and how should I believe in Jesus? And that's pretty much it. And so in this section, we find... In the life of Jesus, as John records the ministry of Jesus, this is the the last hours of Jesus' ministry. This is what's sometimes called the upper room discourse because it's Jesus' discourse or teaching in the upper room on that last supper, the evening before his execution. Remember, this section started out in chapter 13 with Jesus going around the room washing the dirty feet of his disciples. He's warned them 
about uh, one of them is going to betray him. He's even told them that Peter is going to deny him. And of course, their hearts are in fear and trepidation as the thought of Jesus leaving them, the thought of some of their own myths betraying Jesus. They're a little bit unnerved. And it's in that context that Jesus gives them instruction to encourage them, to comfort their hearts for that, so that they would lay hold of the promises that are in Christ. In fact, that's how this section begins in verse 1, where Jesus says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would not have told you, for I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. Jesus comforts his disciples in teaching them that, that there is a, 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 a dwelling place that he is preparing through his cross and resurrection that they can come to upon death or they will come to when Jesus comes back. Jesus also teaches them in the context of questions from Philip and Thomas that he is the only way. And then when Philip says, let me see the, let, let us see the Father. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And on the tail end of this, in, in verse 11, Jesus makes this statement, believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. <laughs> and that was where we kind of landed last week was that we should believe Jesus is God because of his works. But then Jesus says something shocking here. And, and to kind of frame this in, in the proper context, Jesus is highlighting how his disciples can glorify him, how they can honor him as he's about to leave. And this will be their primary focus and primary, pr- primary priority is to glorify him. The first thing Jesus says is the works, the works that glorify God. In verse 12, Jesus says, truly, truly, and this is that double amen statement. It's kind of like, perk up your ears, listen up, guys. I'm about to drop a truth bomb on you. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And the greater works and greater works than these, he will do because I go to the Father. Now, as I mentioned before, many a prosperity preacher or charismatic has taken these verses and greater works are promised to us. And so Jesus did great works of miracles and signs. Therefore, I can do them. But the question obviously is, what are these works that Jesus is referring to? Well, Remember, the verse I just read for you in verse 11, Jesus says, believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. The works certainly include some of those sign miracles that Jesus did. The sign miracle of chapter 2 where he changes the water into wine. The sign miracle of chapter 5 where the nobleman's son is healed by speaking a word. The the sign of feeding the 5,000 in chapter 6, the sign of Jesus walking on the water, the sign of healing the blind man in chapter 9, the sign of 
raising Lazarus from the dead. These are some of the sign miracles that Jesus gave. And so certainly it must include some of those signs. So, so when Jesus says that those who believe in him are going to do greater works, is Jesus saying that those who believe would do greater miracles? Now, there's two, I think, possible interpretations here. And there's one that I don't think is possible. The one that's not possible is the reality that Jesus promises that all of his believers, even today, should be able to raise the dead, heal the blind, etc., etc., just like Jesus did. Or how about how feeding the 5,000, you know? That would be quite a fellowship lunch. Um, despite the claims of the prosperity preachers today, uh, the reality is, is that's not happening today. In fact, it was some years ago, the Christian Research Institute analyzed the, the three, they, they asked Benny Hinn for the three greatest documentations of his miracles that he had performed. All three cases were poorly documented and confused. CRI said, if evidence like this is the best Hinn can muster after years of miracle rallies, with staff working each rally to document, document cases of healings, then there is no credible evidence that he has ever been involved in a bona fide healing. Now, that's not to say that God doesn't heal at all today, but the reality of these claims of this gift of healing from these faith teachers is not what John 14 is teaching here. So that leaves us with, I think, a couple other options. Jesus could, with these greater works be referring to the disciples who were listening to him. Uh, Again, this is the upper room. The context is these disciples who would become apostles who would be involved in doing tremendous miracles. All you have to do is read the book of Acts, right? Like, remember Eutychus, who was sitting on the ledge of the window and fell asleep during Paul's very lengthy sermon. You thought my sermons were long. This was hours long. He fell asleep, fell out the window, and falls dead. Paul says, that's okay. You know, I'll be kind. Even though he's dead, I'll I'll bring him back to life. And Paul brings him back to life. Uh, We see that as well with Dorcas and uh, some tremendous miracles. I mean, people were just trying to get into the the, uh, shadow of the apostles to be healed. There's some tremendous real miracles. So that could be also what Jesus is saying, that... that, that, uh, his immediate disciples and the future apostles who were hearing him would do greater works than him. But I tend to think, because the language that Jesus uses here in verse 12, Jesus says, he who believes in me, that is, believers, those who believe, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do. So that Jesus doesn't say the apostles. He says those, it's kind of a very broad promise of those who believe in him. So the obvious question is, in what sense would believers do the works that Jesus did and even greater works? Well, I don't obviously think greater works necessarily in the sense of greater miracles, But obviously, the miracles, the signs weren't the only things that Jesus did. And I think when you step back and understand what the purpose of the signs were, there can be a legitimate case made that Jesus was saying that we will do greater signs, greater manifestations of God. 
First of all, the greater works, we could say, are greater geographically. In Jesus' days in his flesh, he ministered in Israel in the northern area of Galilee, and then he would travel down south during holiday feasts, and he would do miracles there as well. But it was isolated to Israel. The apostles and Christians today have been involved in spreading the gospel far and wide across this globe. And so the, those who believe in Jesus indeed have done greater works in the sense of geographically greater to more people. You think even after, uh, even numerically, after Jesus had ministered for that three and a half years preaching the gospel, when we look in the book of Acts, how many followers of Jesus were there? 120, not a whole lot, not, not exactly, you know, a mega church, right? But yet, when the history of Christianity unfolds, I mean, eventually Christianity is adopted as a state religion of the Roman Empire. That's pretty significant. And so greater geographically, greater numerically, I would say greater ethnically. We were doing our study in the Sunday school hour on, on critical race theory and ethnic partiality. Well, one of the beautiful things when Christ commissions his disciples, his apostles, he says, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and in the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and so that the gospel goes global through, through the preaching of the word. So that, you know, probably even today, there's probably very few of us who are of Jewish ethnicity, which was the ethnicity that Jesus primarily ministered to. But the gospel, there's greater works in that there's people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, people from all kinds of different ethnicities who've bowed their knee to Jesus. And so it's greater ethnically, greater even in some ways spiritually, or we might say revelationally, what do I mean by that? Listen to one, one, one commentator says, the triumphs of the message of the cross were even greater than the triumphs of Jesus in the days of his flesh. Jesus may have raised the dead physically, but the disciples were able to witness the spiritually dead come to life. And what we have here with the disciples doing greater works, I think we have to go back to and ask ourselves, what was the function of the works that Jesus did? Well, remember, if you remember the study last week, the function of the works was to reveal who Jesus is, right? We, we went through a handful of the different miracles. We saw how, how the, the creating the, the, the wine out of the water was Jesus putting himself as the creator on display, as the institutor of the new temple and the, the new covenant and, and the new worship of, of, of chapter 4. We saw also in chapter 5, Jesus was demonstrating his omnipresence, that he could just speak a word and the, the nobleman's son is healed, his Jesus demonstrating his sovereignty in, in his being Lord over the Sabbath and equal with God himself by healing the paralytic on the Sabbath day. 
Him demonstrating again himself as the creator in chapter 6. Him demonstrating himself as the God of the Exodus and, and walking through on top of the waters. Not through the waters, but on top of the waters in chapter 6. And so all those, and, and then Lazarus, right? And, and the blind man. These were revealing who Jesus is. And so when we look at the function of the miracles or the function of the works of Jesus are to reveal who Jesus is, the disciples and those who believe today even can do greater works because we can preach the fullness of Christ. What do I mean by that? Well, up until this point in the Gospel of John, imagine the Gospels, imagine the authors of the Gospel. It's like, remember Bob Ross? Bob Ross would do those paintings and you know, he has that calm, soothing voice and he'd get the afro going on and... Uh, Bob Ross is, you know, I'm going to put this over here and this over here. And well, the, the, the authors of the gospel, they're painting a portrait of Christ. But the portrait's not complete until the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's an incomplete portrait. In fact, that's one of the reasons when you read, especially the other gospels, you'll often hear Jesus, after he does this amazing miracle, Jesus will say, don't, don't tell others about this. And the reason why Jesus often does that is because the portrait's not complete. Because if they only view Jesus as a miracle worker and not as a savior who dies on the cross, they're only getting part of the picture. And so those who believe even today can do greater works than Jesus himself because they can declare the fullness of who Jesus is from this side of the cross. As the portrait has been complete, as Jesus has died and risen from the dead, we can proclaim the gospel and do greater works because it's a greater revelation that we have on this side of the cross. And to be sure, even when you think of the last two sign miracles that Jesus did, there's a very real sense in which that which those sign miracles point to is the exact kinds of things that believers today are involved with. Chapter 9, the healing of the blind man, which becomes clear within that context. What, what's really going on is while Jesus spit on the ground and mixed mud and put it on his eyes and healed his physical eyes literally, there was also something else going on in the man's heart, Right? Jesus was opening his eyes spiritually. Same thing with Lazarus being raised from the dead, that, that this is a picture of spiritual resurrection of people who are dead in trespasses and sins being raised from the dead. These are two works that believers can and have the joy of being involved with. In fact, listen to how the Apostle Paul describes the ministry he was appointed to in Acts chapter 26 and verse 16. It says, but get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, as Paul is testifying before a government official, to appoint you as a minister and witness, not only of the things which you have seen, but also the things which will appear to you. And so this, was, this is Paul describing his ministry rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light 
and from the dominion of Satan to God, and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Paul describes his ministry as healing blind eyes. Not physical eyes, but spiritual eyes, turning people from darkness to light. So, friends, this is, this is good news. This is an amazing thought. That when Jesus says that those who believe in him would do greater works, that you have an opportunity to be involved in greater works in the sense to great to even more greatly reveal who God is to the world around you by explaining the gospel to others, to be involved in the conversion of others, to be involved in others receiving spiritual sight and others being raised from the dead. That's part of what it means when Jesus said to make disciples of all the nations, to preach the gospel to every creature. You can be involved in something that's cosmic, a global purpose that, is, that transcends any earthly purpose, any temporal purpose that you can be involved in. Oh, and what a joy it is, right? If you've ever had the experience of being involved in explaining the gospel to somebody who doesn't know the Lord, and then them come to a saving knowledge of Jesus and their life being turned upside down. It is a tremendous joy. It is a delight to live for something that's worth living for and worth dying for. So, my friend, are you involved in this greater work? Are you involved in this disciple-making business? Are you involved in explaining the gospel to friends and neighbors and family members and even strangers? I encourage you, do so. Scatter those seeds and see what God might do. A.W. Pink says the preaching of a risen and an exalted Savior, the proclaiming of the gospel to every creature, the turning of souls from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to service of the living God, the causing of the heathen to demolish their own hands with their own hands, the temples of idolatry, the, the building of that temple of living stones to which Christ is both the foundation and the chief cornerstone in which uh, and which far surpassed the temple in Jerusalem, these things are far greater than any inferences with the courses of natural law. Thus did the Father honor His Son, owing the perfect work which He had done, by which greater wonders which the Holy Spirit effected through the disciples. What an amazing thought, these greater works Dear child of God, get involved in these greater works if you're not already. Speak the gospel. I, I get it. You know, I'm, I can be a sissy just like anybody else. Coward. Where, where you have a situation, opportunity where you could speak a word for Christ and that thought comes in your head. They may not like me. 
They may get angry. Just crucify it. Jesus said before he commissioned his disciples, he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go and make disciples. All authority in heaven and on earth. The king of kings and lord of lords, who is the owner of this universe, has commissioned us to make disciples. That's our business. That's our business. If anything is our business, that's our business. It starts in the home, your own children. Be one who regularly teaches them the scriptures and preaches the gospel to them and prays for them. Move out to your neighbors. Not move in with your neighbors, but move out. Start preaching the gospel to them. Tell them about Jesus. Co-workers, family members. It's a greater work. So it's the work that glorifies God. But secondly, it's also the talk. Notice what this verse 13 says. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So, again, this is another Verse that the name it and claim it, the blab it and grab it crowd latches on to. What does it mean to ask in Jesus' name? Well, Benny Hinn says, never, ever, ever go to the Lord and say, if it be thy will. Do not allow such faith-destroying words to ever be spoken from your mouth. When you pray, if it be your will, Lord, faith will be destroyed. Benny Hinn is wrong, in case you're wondering. What does it mean to ask in Jesus' name? In fact, this isn't the only time Jesus mentions this. In fact, two other times within the same discourse, in chapter 15, verse 16, says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. Similarly, in 1623, in that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, so that your joy may be full. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language, and hours coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will request of the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. So two other times, Jesus mentions asking or bringing requests to him in Jesus' name. So, Does this mean that this is a kind of a formula that if you just tack it on to the end of your prayer and say in Jesus' name, it's guaranteed to plow its way through the ceiling and make it to heaven? No. It's not what it means. In fact, as far as I can tell, 
there is, you know, there's a handful of prayers that are recorded in the New Testament, and not one of them ends or begins in Jesus' name. You know, so the Apostle Paul prays for the church in Ephesus two times in the book of Ephesians, never ends that prayer in Jesus' name. Uh, Colossians, he prays for the Colossians, never mentions in Jesus' name. Uh, there's plenty of prayers throughout the book of Acts, never mentions in Jesus' name. So what does it mean? Well, name often carries the idea of reputation. It's used quite a bit through in that way in the Scripture. Uh, you think of, I think it's Psalm 1, uh, it's in the hundreds. Not unto us, not unto us, but unto your name be the glory. Uh, name often, you know, even the Proverbs speak of a good name is the idea of a person's reputation. You know, I remember my dad would tell me, you know, work hard, you're a maker. You, you carry the family name, okay? So name often carries the idea of reputation. In some instances, it carries the idea of authority or representation. It often name is consistent with a person's character, uh, a person's name is, is the idea of their, their character, who they are. In fact, uh, so with this, A.W. Pink summarized, we pray in his person that is standing in his place. So, so because Jesus is our representative, we can pray with, with his authority because we are united to him. He is our representative before God. In and of ourselves, we can't ask anything. We don't deserve anything, but we can ask because of Jesus, we plead before God the merits of his blessed son. When men use another's name as the authority of their reproach or the ground of their appeal, one of whom request is made looks beyond him who, rep who presented the petition to the one uh, for whose sake he grants the request. And then we pray according to his perfections or his character. So, so this is the idea. We pray. When we pray in his name, it carries the idea of praying for things that are consistent with the character of Jesus, with the glory of Jesus, with the authority of Jesus. Because we are united to Christ, we can even ask anything before him. And so Jesus says here, if you ask in my name, if you're asking for things that are consistent with my character, if you're asking because you're united to me and I am your representative, if you're asking and it's for my glory, I delight to answer those prayers. In fact, when we read this verse, Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. In other words, who are we praying to? Who's the one granting the request? Seems to me it's Jesus himself. Now, I, there is a textual variant here, but I think the best reading is that Jesus will answer this prayer. And again, within this context of Jesus arguing that he is one with the Father, he is of the same essence as the Father, he is God of very God, it would make sense that we can pray to Jesus. John Piper says, God delights in the aroma of his own glory 
as he smells it in the prayers of his people. He also says prayer is the open admission that without Christ, we can do nothing. Prayer is turning away from ourselves to God in confidence that he will provide the help that we need. Prayer humbles us as needy and exalts God as wealthy. And so again, within this context of the greater works that believers can be involved in, the greater works certainly would be consistent, or, or these prayers in Jesus' name would certainly be consistent with the mission of God and the revelation of Jesus. Those are the kinds of prayers that, that Jesus delights to answer. When we come to him and, and we're praying for the salvation of friends and family members, where we're praying for, for other brothers and sisters who are caught in sin to be untangled from that sin, to be bearing more fruit, when we're praying for the global advance of the gospel, when we're praying for our own spiritual growth to be more conformed to the character of Christ. Amen. These are the kinds of things that... Jesus delights to answer. I understand there's, to be sure, a challenge for any believer, the, the difficulty of the reality of unanswered prayer. Sometimes there can be prayers related to unbelieving family members or prayers for God to heal others or things like that that... We sometimes scratch our head and say, God, why, why don't you answer this prayer? And of course, we would have to be God to know the answer to his not answering. But Jesus does give a parable to help us to understand a little bit about prayer. When Jesus asks these questions, it's kind of like a parable he says, uh, you know, if a child asks his father for bread, the father doesn't go and give him a rock and say, go munch on that, right? <laughs> a child doesn't ask for an egg and the father says, here, here's, here's some scorpions, go play with those. And then Jesus says, if, if, if you being evil, you fathers who are fallen descendants of Adam with all your selfishness, if you know how to good, give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give what is good to you? In other words, sometimes when we experience the pain of God not giving what we ask, we just need to trust and say, Father, you know what's best. I, you know, it seems from my vantage point, it seems that your name would be glorified through the salvation of this family member, the salvation of this son or daughter, or the, the, that you would be glorified for the healing of this friend, that this child would not die of cancer. Lord, it would appear that you would be glorified, but God, I subject myself to you that you are a good father and you know what's best. And we just have to trust that if God, according to the Scriptures, he does everything for his glory and for the good of his people, the Father knows best. We can still pray. We still should pray with earnest, with pleading, with sweat, but also not lose heart when 
seems like he's not answering as we want. So, friend, do you pray for, do you ask in Jesus' name for salvation of friends, family, neighbors? Why don't you just start, start out small? If it's not a regular habit for you to pray for unbelieving family members and friends or neighbors, just pick one or two and start praying earnestly. And then how about this? Pray for an opportunity to do one of these greater works where you explain the gospel to them. You want to see some answered prayer real quick? It's amazing. Pray for opportunities to speak the gospel, and all of a sudden you'll be flooded with all these opportunities. Now, whether you take those opportunities, that's another matter, but they'll be there. You'll see them. They're all around you. He loves to answer that prayer. Is it your desire for others to know him? Is it your desire that his fame would spread far and wide? That's the heart desire of a believer. It's not always at the forefront as it should be, but it's the impulse, the heart of a believer to long that others would know Jesus. But also you need to know that if you are not in Jesus, you can't actually pray in Jesus' name. Now, you can utter those words, but not in truth, not in reality can you pray in Jesus' name unless you're trusting in Jesus and you're united to him and you are a representative before God is Jesus. You think of the book of Esther when Ahasuerus was the king and Esther, you know, she, she was going to approach the king and he had to extend his scepter or else off with her head, right? You can't approach God without a representative, without Jesus to stand as that go-between and say, he or she is permitted access to the throne because I paid for their sins. So, friend, if you don't have Jesus as your representative, you don't have access to God the Father. You don't even know God the Father. And so the way you begin to pray in Jesus' name, you have to come humbly before Jesus, confessing your sin, acknowledging yourself as a rebel, repentant, and trusting in Jesus and what he did on the cross to pay the punishment for your sin as the only grounds for your acceptance before God. You need him as your representative in order to begin to pray. Make him your representative. He's not running for Congress, but you can have him as your representative if you trust in him. So that's the talk that glorifies God. The work that glorifies God is revealing Jesus through the preaching of the gospel. The talk is the prayer that we bring in Jesus' name. And now thirdly, the walk that glorifies God. Verse 15 here, it's kind of Challenging to know whether verse 15, we should take it with the next section, with this section. It seems best to keep it with this section on, on, on the theme of glorifying God. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, what's fascinating here is often <coughs> in the Old Testament, especially in the Pentateuch, 
where God institutes this covenant relationship with his people, that this matter of love and obedience or love and keeping God's commands go hand in glove. You can't separate them. Listen to a couple of these verses. Deuteronomy 5.10, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Deuteronomy 6, 5 and 6, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. These words I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 13, now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve him with all your heart, and with all your soul, to keep the Lord's commandments and the statutes which I am commanding you today. So over and over, when God was instituting a covenant with his people, the, the basic standard of their response to him was, love me and keep my commandments. Love me and keep my commandments. And so what's fascinating here in this context as Jesus is on the brink of instituting a new covenant, and he's just given a new commandment in chapter 13. Remember he said that? A new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. It's within that context that Jesus says, if you love me, you keep my commandments. That this is the proper response to Jesus. This is how... Believers glorify God. This is how we share our responsibility and our covenant relationship with this great God. We love and obey. Love and obey. And, and, and this is beautiful because if it's just obedience without love, that's military, right? You know? Ten hut! Woke some of you up. Attention, get down, give me 20. You obey, right? You don't negotiate, but do you love? You ready to give a smooch to that drill instructor? Probably not. But in the context of a relationship with Jesus, love and obedience. It's not just love, so it's not a kind of sloppy agape, you know, I just love Jesus. I mean, I don't ever obey him. I don't ever do what he says. But I, you know, I just feel warm and fuzzy on the inside when I think about Jesus. Well, hopefully you do feel warm and fuzzy. That's a good thing. But we also need to obey. It also helps us understand that love is that primary motivation that drives obedience. And love is going to be fueled by the gospel of grace. This is why Jesus said in giving that new commandment, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you. That Christ's love for us as we ponder the reality that he would die for my sins, that he would bear in his body the full fury of hell on my behalf. It melts my heart and it gives me a love for him and a love for others that makes me want to obey him. If you love me, Jesus says, you'll keep my commandments. And this, this is beautiful because this glorifies God. Jonathan Edwards has that classic quote. I meant to pull it up for this, but, but God is glorified not only in being known 
but also in being delighted in and loving him. And in this context, Jesus is revealing himself, revealing God through his works. But it's not just to be known, it's to be loved. And we, we understand that. I mean, a cook is not necessarily glorified by us understanding the ingredients of their creation but by us enjoying what they have made with a heart of thankfulness to the maker. To love Jesus. Can't help but think about one who was lying down here not far from Jesus, who in the context of The Gospel of John, as it unfolds, he fails Jesus in quite a tremendous way. In fact, Jesus says that he would fail him. He mentioned that at the end of chapter 13, he tells Peter, you will betray me. And when they come to arrest Jesus, remember Peter's gung-ho, and he pulls out his sword, and he starts swinging his sword, and he cuts off the ear of the servant the high priest's servant's ear. But then when he's around the fire warming his hands and a little girl asks him if he's a follower of Jesus, the fear of man brings a snare to Peter's heart and he denies Jesus three times. We remember when Jesus recommissions Peter at the end of the Gospel of John. He says to him, Three times, what? Peter, do you love me? And each time that Peter says, I love you, Jesus reiterates the command, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. See, remember the context in which Jesus finds Peter, he's gone back to his fishing business. He's no longer a fisher of man. He's back to fishing fishies. And Jesus needs to go back and ask him, Peter, do you love me? If you love me, Peter, you'll get back to the work that I have for you to make disciples, to be a fisher of men. That's the greater work that Jesus gives. That's the praying in Jesus' name. That's how we manifest our love for Jesus is by obeying him involving ourselves in this great mission that he has, it brings glory to his name. Let's pray.